COVID cases and deaths are off the charts. Shocking levels of poverty grip huge parts of the United States and that poverty is growing. The people of Venezuela go to the polls in a historic election. We remember the life and legacy of Black Panther Party leader Fred Hampton and more. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. Today is December 8th, 2020. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel. Regular contributor Walter Smolarek is out today. I'm here with Esther Ivarum and our host, Brian Becker. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Esther, I'm so glad you could join us. Esther Averam is a veteran journalist, a producer and host of the On the Ground Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital Radio program, which you can hear every week on Pacifica Radio. Esther, welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to join you and Nicole. And uh, I've admired your show. And, and I'm sure that I speak for many of your listeners to say that I am just so happy to hear you doing the show. Esther, we're so, so glad you could join us. Nicole and Esther, we have a great show today, really packed, filled with news and analysis. Of course, we have Leonardo Flores to talk in a more in-depth part of the, of the show about the Venezuela elections. Tomorrow, we have Professor Richard Wolf again talking about the biggest stories for the economy and how it impacts the working class and society. And I'm very, very happy to let everyone know that on Thursday of this week, we're going to be broadcasting a special in-depth segment about U.S.-Korea relations, U.S.-North Korea relations, the relations between North and South Korea, and try to put them in context with the incoming Biden administration. So we, we have a discussion with Hyun Lee and Gregory Elich, and that'll be coming on Thursday. Let's get started. Nicole, I looked at an article in on the Medium website today. America's nightmare COVID scenario is coming true all over again. Uh, the number of people who are infected every day, over 200,000. The number of deaths, 2,300 per day. I mean, this is the same casualty level that was uh, what we witnessed on 9-11, 2001 with the uh, attacks on the walls uh, on the World Trade Center in the Pentagon, uh, a shocking level of failure on the part of the government, not just Trump, but the state governments, the municipal governments, a failure of the capitalist system. But let's talk about what the numbers actually tell us. We just crossed 15 million cases in the United States, 15 million cases. I mean, that's an incredible a shocking number. Um, but it's not shocking when you look back over the last months since March and see the steady increase, the sometimes skyrocketing uh, waves 
um, that they call them of these cases. Um, and unlike other countries, we haven't really had waves in that same sense where we have a skyrocket number of cases and then it, it crests and comes all the way down close to zero numbers of cases per day. We've the United States has always had through since March has had a steady level at a minimum um, of cases, every of new cases every single day and of people dying. And all of that is due to the complete, complete lack of planning, lack, lack of empathy, lack of uh, concern from um, the so-called leaders of this country in both, as you said, in the national level, state level and even local levels. Um, and it's also due to that capitalist system that you just identified, Brian, because it's not profitable to handle a lot of these things appropriately. It's not profitable as we've gone over um, you know, in past weeks. It's not profitable to make the, the right number of ventilators if there's a pandemic. It's not profitable to continue to have a government um, planning agency to plan for pandemics that we know will happen. We don't know yeah. when they'll happen, but we know they will happen. Um, just for some of the numbers that I think are important, the U.S. set... Uh, a record just a few days ago, last Friday, of 227,885 new COVID cases in one day. The deaths in the United States now are over 280,000. And when you look at China, where uh, many reports say um, the co coronavirus originated, the deaths in China are still in that 4,000 range, which is a lot of deaths, but it is far fewer than the 280,000 in the U.S. And that was about the number um, of people who died at the very, very beginning of the year. China has actually pretty much controlled this virus. Those are shocking numbers, Nicole, really shocking. I mean, and they're numbers, but behind every number, as we know, there's a, there's a person, there's a family, uh, this heartbreaking tragedy all over the United States. And I have to say that really the government has accepted this as an acceptable outcome for the American people. Even now, uh, even now, Mayor Bowser here in Washington, D.C., as the, as the cases skyrocket back to the level that they were back in March and April, uh, the mayor and her health care officials say, well, we have to balance uh, health care concerns with the, with the interests of the business community, which seems to me to be uh, a real indictment of the system. Uh, but Esther, I, I thought this, what we were witnessing now with this huge spike is the, the surge, the predictable surge after the Thanksgiving holiday where people didn't follow the advice of experts and actually traveled on planes and other modes of transportation and visited families and had large family gatherings. I thought this was the surge. No, it's not the surge. And Anthony Fauci said this week that the blip from Thanksgiving is, isn't even here yet. And he was speaking to CBS uh, when he said this. And he's saying that those, that spike may not happen for a couple of weeks, and it will actually merge into what is expected to be a new wave of traveling for the, th for the Christmas holidays and also you know, other holidays that are celebrated. And so he is not optimistic about uh, where these numbers are going. I saw, Nicole, I saw a report in China Daily last week the headline was China reports two new cases on December 2nd, 2020. Two new cases. And what's the number for the United States? Um, you were citing the numbers from December 4th. That was like 200,000 that day. More than. And here you have the U.S. media denouncing China as an authoritarian model. Well, no, 
China dealt with COVID the way it needed to be dealt with. And as a consequence, people in China go to work. They see their families. They're having fun. They're not locked down. Uh, Again, two new cases on December 2nd in China. Right. We on Friday, there was that record 227,000 new cases in one day. But, you know, today it's it's lower. It's not setting a record, but it's lower at 202,000 new cases in one day. So that was uh, those are the numbers from today that are uh, reporting today uh, from yesterday, December 7th. I mean, this is a huge, huge number of new cases. And um, Brian, what you just said is really important. There is such a tendency that I think arises from um, the political and capitalist class to blame the individual for um, not following rules or not doing this or that. And while, you know, I think obviously people should be wearing masks, people should be following rules. A lot of this lies with the the actual politicians. A lot of this lies with the CDC. A lot of this lies with um, the officials who are not making this easy. There's not testing available still months later. Yeah. Um, there's not easy access to testing. There's not easy access to um, the, you know, the care that people need. And and that is, I think, what's really driving um, this pandemic. Yeah. Esther, and, and, if, and if they want to uh, criticize people traveling on Thanksgiving, why do they stress having an economy where people were able to fly, where people, you know, why didn't they uh, put in the, the, the laws and the measures so that people had to stay home? You know, it's you know, you can call China an authoritarian state if you want to. But what is good government and what is not good government? You know, if you are trying to fight a pandemic, that means that you have to have control over the mechanisms to basically force people to do what they may not want to do for the public good. And the other thing that's happening right now as this spike is occurring is that there's still not enough masks and PPE for the healthcare workers and essential workers. So even after almost a year now, you know, nine months of handling this this pandemic and this crisis, this economy has not produced the type of equipment that people need that they that that the essential workers need to even treat people. I think that's a really really good point. Uh, again, that that article in Medium. It blames the American people for being idiots. Now, granted, there's a lot of foolish behavior going on. Uh, I was looking at uh, pictures last night of these giant concerts, music concerts in Orlando, Florida and other places in Florida and in Texas. I mean, literally thousands of people gathered together without masks. Yes, there's there's, quote, individual or family related activity that's not the right activity. But Esther, you're right. I mean, if the government wants to do something, it has the power, it has the authority to do it. Take, for instance, seatbelts. I mean, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, nobody wore seatbelts and then it became a law and you had to wear a seatbelt. And if you didn't wear a seatbelt, you know, you were going to get fined. And ultimately the culture shifted as a consequence and both because people had to do it. There were rules, there were consequences, but lots of public education uh, by the government. There wasn't like a big movement to say no to seatbelts. The same thing happened with smoking cigarettes in bars. At one time that was considered impossible to ban smoking, but now essentially it's been banned. 
the government has the ability, it has the authority to do it. But it seems to me the only time the government actually, this government actually gets itself together and shows that it is a centralized apparatus capable of carrying out immediate, effective, and large-scale action that requires both discipline and logistical support is when it comes to invading other countries. You know, when it comes to, you know, mobilizing uh, hundreds of thousands of troops to go to Iraq or to Afghanistan or earlier to Vietnam or to Korea, then the government's all in. Uh, Then the government actually functions somewhat efficiently. Well, maybe not that efficiently, but certainly more efficiently than what's happening in COVID. But again, this is uh, every state for the, for itself. The federal government has minimized. Uh, there are no incentives for hospitals to, uh, you know, to store equipment that might not be useful except at times of pandemic, uh, again, because they're all driven by profit. And also, when it comes to, uh, to the vaccine, Nicole, why not suspend, uh, you know, so-called property, uh, intellectual property rights. Why does every corporation have to, again, make profit off of this disease? Why can't there be a complete sharing of all information, make it open source, make it available to all the scientists? I mean, there are vaccines that are being delivered in other countries right now. But again, the primacy and the way uh, the priority of money spending showed itself was was to make sure that the profits for the pharmaceuticals came first. Right. And a lot of these, especially the first two vaccines um, that were found to be successful, are working off of a technology that the U.S. public actually funded because it was researched by the National Institutes of Health. So the the base research that that was able to get these vaccines, that was what was able to get these vaccines um, effective so quickly and, and made so quickly, was actually already funded by the U.S. taxpayer, by all of us, by the, the three of us, by everybody listening, by everybody in this country. And yet, it is the pharmaceutical companies that will make the profit off of these specific vaccines that um, took a couple of months and yes, a lot of hard work, um, but are you know based on the the workers doing that work, based on the the scientists, those workers who developed these things. Um, and Brian, I want to turn to another element of the coronavirus um, pandemic that's I think incredibly important and not looked at enough, which is the other horrendous conditions that make this COVID crisis so much worse. Um, and and one of the ones I want to talk about today um, is one example of the horrendous poverty that's in the United States that is in some ways, uh, you know, not, you know, is is completely is, is worse than some other countries, even 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 though the United States is the wealthiest in the world. Um, people may have uh, listeners may have heard of Pamela Rush. She was um, a this incredible human being from Lowndes County, Alabama, a couple of years ago, she started speaking out um, about the horrendous raw sewage problem in Lowndes County, Alabama, because the state of Alabama mandates that anybody who's not on a sewer line already um, has to essentially figure out how to deal with sewage on an individual basis. Um, 80% of people in the Black Belt all across uh, the United States uh, do not live on a municipal sewer line. So that's a huge, huge number of people. Um, I want to play a clip from uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber. He's the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. And he's at the congressional testimony of Pamela Rush, um, this phenomenal organizer um, who's from Lowndes County, Alabama. 
Um, and again, this is the the majority black county where sewage regularly backs up into people's yards um, because of the mismanagement of Alabama's uh, state and municipalities here as well. And this audio clip is from a memorial video about Miss Rush because she died from the coronavirus this summer. Lowndes County has the highest rate of the coronavirus in the state of Alabama and one of the highest in the entire country, um, which is why this is so relevant um, both to the coronavirus and to you know the uh, the general issue with poverty in America. So the, again, here is Reverend Dr. William Barber. Pamela let us come in her house courageously. It was hard. She said, I want the nation maybe to help somebody else. A predatory lender made her pay $120,000 for a single white house that she's still paying for. She's in the Poor People's Campaign. She said, I have no place else to go but fight. And here's Catherine Flowers. She's another, another clip. She's an organizer from Lowndes County, Alabama. She's been working to expose these dangerous conditions. And she was the one actually who organized Reverend Barber's visit to Pamela Rush's home. And she explains a little more about what's going on there. A homeowner is responsible for the systems, for the individual systems here in Lowndes County uh, because they own the property, but they cannot afford the remedy. Unlike in places like the in the urban communities, Taxpayers' money actually help establish those systems. Here, they leave it up to poor people to do it. And because they cannot afford it, it doesn't get done. And then they're prosecuted for not being able to afford the remedy. Instead of a massive effort being made to put in place wastewater treatment that could take in the affluent that's being released into the environment, it's being left up to poor homeowners who don't have the resources to do it. Brian, these are the kinds of conditions that people are living in, in even in the midst of this crisis. Indeed. Um, I mean, that's just shocking. I mean, people, I certainly didn't really know about this uh, until recently. Uh, Lowndes County, Alabama is a very poor county. It's part of the Black Belt. It's, by the way, it's it's the place where many, it was the center of some of the fiercest civil rights struggles in the 1950s and 60s. Was actually the birthplace, Esther, I believe, of the of the Black Panther Party, which then later headquartered uh, with Huey P. Newton's leadership in Oakland. Right. Uh, but yeah, but people don't know about this. Yeah, and when I I first learned of this uh, crisis in Lowndes County uh, about three years ago, when a study came out uh, from scientists at Baylor University. And I know at some point the United Nations actually visited Lowndes County and uh, found the conditions there uh, similar to like third world countries. And this was also happening when people were still talking about the the crisis in Flint, Michigan, where you had uh, largely poor, uh, uh, you know, largely black popula- population being uh, poisoned by lead in their pipes. And so this whole issue of public infrastructure, and, you know, I want to, um, you know, believe uh, Ms. Flowers because, you know, she knows the area, but I can't believe that no tax dollars or public funds were put into creating a proper sewage system for the white people in Lowndes County or that area, but somehow this other area where the predominantly black population lives, you know, uh, you know, had to fend for themselves. So it just goes to the issue of public 
funding, public infrastructure, serving everyone and, uh, you know, not uh, poor people, working class people not being targeted and and left behind while while they put taxes into the system. You know, we're not getting the benefit out of the system. It's a systematic uh, form of racism, meaning it's institutionalized. And and so you have a government racism, government officials racism. You have a government officials official policy, which is racist. You have institutional racism. You have individualized racism. Uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, uh, Tennessee, you know, the the states of the Confederacy, of course, we identify that, we identify those states with this kind of extreme racism. But, you know, there's another part to the story, which is also having to do with the the conflation or the overlap between institutional racism and COVID, uh, exacerbated by COVID, which is not in the South. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about Bronx. I'm thinking about one of the five boroughs of New York City. I don't know if the two of you saw this story, uh, but in West Farms, which is part of the Bronx, the unemployment rate soared from 11% in February, meaning, again, way above the national average in February 2020, to 38% in June. And now it's down. It's down to just 26%. That means one out of every four workers in the Bronx, which is predominantly a black and Latino borough, maybe almost exclusively in West Farms, the unemployment rate is 25%. That's depression era levels of unemployment. Uh, Again, if you look at the Upper East Side, which is not too far from the Bronx, the Upper East Side of Manhattan Island, uh, there was a 5% uh, unemployment rate in September. That was up from 1% in February. And according to the same statistical model, uh, unemployment now in the Upper East Side, again, just a couple miles from West Farms in the Bronx, uh, the unemployment is negligible. So, Nicole, you can't think about uh, capitalism in America without thinking about white racism, about white supremacy, about institutional racism. And again, it's not just in Southern states. As as Malcolm X poignantly said, uh, the South began at the U.S.-Canadian border. Anyway, let's talk about the Bronx a little bit. Absolutely, because I think the numbers you pointed out are really important, and I just want to emphasize a couple of them, because the unemployment rate before when we were in a quote-unquote good economy, Trump's quote-unquote great economy that he um, said was, you know, said repeatedly over and over and over was so good. In West Farms, the unemployment rate in February was 11%. Now, that's higher. That's the quote-unquote good unemployment rate. That's higher than it is now on the Upper West Side. That's higher than it is now on the Upper East Side in, in Manhattan. So the the crisis unemployment rate in these very wealthy areas of Manhattan, that's actually lower than the normal, maybe good unemployment rate, quote unquote good in West Farms. I just wanted to point that out because that is really, really, you know, it says so much. Well, let me, um, let Nicole, let me jump in and, and you know, Esther, uh, again, it's this, the, 
the cascading crises of uh, the government and capitalism are impacting black and Latino communities disproportionately. In the same borough of Manhattan, the Bronx, it has not only this amazing levels of unemployment, but the highest rates of total coronavirus hospitalizations and deaths of any of the five boroughs in New York. And in New York, there are mass graves that are being and have been being uh, constructed and people, poor people's bodies dumped into them. This is going on today, 2020, not in Lowndes County, Alabama, but in, in New York City. Right. And I would question if that is the official unemployment rate in the Bronx. We know that the actual unemployment is much higher. These, um, these unemployment stats don't count people who have given up looking for work, people who are considered long-term uh, unemployed, the people who are unemployed. Uh, I don't know if it includes all the people who were unemployed already before the pandemic. So it's, it's uh, you know, people who are working part-time, uh, people who are being um, put into jobs that you know, only give them one or two hours a week. So, you know, the, we know that the misery in the Bronx and in communities all over the country where low paid service workers, uh, the undocumented, uh, black and brown communities, we know that those employment, unemployment rates are actually much higher. Nicole, I want to I turn to another issue. Again, the intersection of uh, extreme racism and uh, COVID and capitalism and government policy. I'm looking at a New York Times article, a Trump immigration policy is leaving families hungry. Subtitle, the public charge rule was supposed to ensure that green cards go only to self-sufficient immigrants. But in the pandemic, it is driving up hunger and leaving Joe Biden with a quandary. Well, talk about a ridiculous subtitle. Yeah, it's a, actually, everybody, it's a quandary for the families who can't eat. But I want to read a couple of sentences to you and then get your reaction, because we've been following the immigration issue closely. Uh, the cars, this is a byline from Houston. The cars began filling into the parking lot shortly after 6 a.m., snaking around police officers who directed traffic to masked volunteers standing ready with boxes of frozen pizza, tortillas, and brown bags of canned foods. The coronavirus pandemic pushed many of the hundreds of families to the drive through food pantry, but among the several immigrant families in line, another cause was at work. President Trump's newly expanded regulation that blocks access to green cards for legal immigrants, legal immigrants, who are deemed likely to accept any government assistance, even with citizen children who clearly qualify for federal assistance, undocumented immigrant parents are eschewing programs like food stamps and are flocking to food pantries. That, in turn, is badly straining relief agencies and presenting a challenge to the incoming administration. Now, here, I mean, you know, I, I think our show, The Socialist Program, promotes the idea that workers, regardless of nationality, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, that we are workers, that we are people who make society run. It's our labor that creates the wealth in society. 
That wealth is largely expropriated by the capitalists, by a small class of billionaires and very, very rich millionaires. For us as socialists, I think it's very important to emphasize that the workers who go to work every day in the United States, who make it run, who are essential to the economy, whether you're a native-born worker, whether you're a citizen worker, whether you're a legal immigrant worker with a green card, or whether you happen to be without papers and thus undocumented, but you're here, you're here and you're surviving, and in your survival, you're making the economy run. Every single human being here, every single worker here, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, or race, must have the same and equal treatment. They must have the same and equal rights. And the idea that this new policy, which has not really been contested by the Democrats, says to even legal immigrants, you can't get food assistance, you can't get food stamps, even though the government's failures led to you losing your job during the past seven months, shows the ultimate and, and sort of highest level of criminality of American capitalism. It absolutely does. And it's not only that, but it's bipartisan. This, uh, you know, this thing that that Trump expanded, it was a Clinton era regulation. And that was what started pushing immigrant families away from these programs. Um, And that's what the Times article is talking about with, um, you know, this uh, challenge, quote unquote, that President Biden is going to have to deal with. But again, this is bipartisan. This started in the Clinton era. Um, Trump expanded it. And what this does essentially is blocks anybody, like you said, um, it blocks anybody to have green cards for legal immigrants who are deemed, quote unquote, likely to accept government assistance. A, deeming that seems like who gets to draw that line. But B, I mean, to your point, Brian, it's so much more important than that. Um, These are human beings who are in this country who need the very, very basic thing. They need food. They need to be able to eat. They need their their children to be able to eat. And that just seems like, um, you know, the, the most basic thing on the planet. It just actually reminds me of the the way that Venezuela was so demonized and it really mischaracterized and lied about during the whole at the height of the campaign against Venezuela and how they would talk about Venezuelans being hungry. But in contrast to what you're just describing, Venezuela actually provided a box of food for every family that included staples that could help the family make it through the month. You know, rice, beans, the basic things that people could use. You know, humble food, nothing fancy, but, you know, people were not starving. And it's because the government, you know, had its responsibility to the people. And that's in contrast to this government right now who is showing no responsibility to the people. So I just... I know we're we're not on that topic right now, but it just reminded me of this box of food that, you know, the, the, the media here, the corporate media just totally ignored in terms of what Venezuelans were getting and how they were being taken care of by their government. And it would cost so little to do that. You know, Esther, I'm glad you mentioned Venezuela because that government policy, uh, that government policy was a policy pursued by the Maduro government. Maduro became president. Venezuela after the untimely death of Hugo Chavez. There were elections on Sunday in Venezuela. We're going to talk about it at the after this segment of our show. We're we're going to have the final segment, which is going to be an interview with Leonardo Flores, who is an expert on Venezuela and U.S. Venezuelan relations. But let's uh, let's just take a moment and talk about 
what actually happened. These were historic elections because just to frame it, on January 23rd, 2019, Juan Guaido, somebody most Venezuelans had not even heard of, proclaimed himself to be the president of Venezuela, even though he never ran for office for president. And then, of course, Mike Pence had calls with him. Uh, he had the support of Donald Trump. The U.S. then you know, twisted the arm of other countries. Fifty countries recognized Juan Guaido as the new government of Venezuela. Here in Washington, D.C., uh, the U.S. government uh, violated uh, the Vienna Convention in an act of international piracy, stole the Venezuelan embassy and gave it to Juan Guaido. But here we had an election uh, just on Sunday. Juan Guaido and his folks, who are completely irrelevant now in the political process, only existing really with the support of outside imperialist aid, uh, they weren't running. They boycotted it because they didn't want to bestow legitimacy on the existing government, the real government, the actual government. But anyway, these elections were important because uh, partly because of the fragmented opposition where part of it was boycotting uh, the PSUV, the pro-Bolivarian revolutionary groups, and it's not just the PSUV, there are others, uh, they came out with a very, very strong majority. Let's talk about that. Brian, the elections were this Sunday, December 6th, like you said, they were for the National Assembly. And this is particularly important, as you mentioned, because the National Assembly the last elections were in 2015, and the opposition parties actually won the National Assembly. They won control of that. Um, using the same systems, the same processes, uh, the uh, PSUV, um, are uh, the results are showing that the PSUV clearly won, uh, really swept um, the, uh, the assembly here. So 67.6% of the vote was the first results that came out, and that went to the, the PSUV, which is the, um, the Socialist Party of the government. Um, and, and that's a, that's a huge, huge flip from what it was before. But I, I want to say a couple more things that are really important because, uh, before voting even happened, the United States and the European Union were calling this vote fraudulent, which is really astounding when you think about it. One of the reasons the European Union was, was doing this and was saying that it was fraudulent is that they wanted to, um, impose a number of conditions for the process, including pushing the elections back by several months. Uh, the, you know, that sounds like, intervention on its face. But, you know, even worse than that, the, their own constitution, the Venezuelan constitution stipulates that a new parliament must be sworn in by January 5th, 2021, when obviously Venezuela wouldn't go forward with those conditions. The EU decided not to send any observers and to say, well, you know, we're throwing our hands up where this is clearly, you know, not going to be a legitimate election, which is completely, completely crazy. Um, the one other thing that I think is really important the, you know, these a couple of these really radical right wing groups like Juan Guaido, um, they decided to boycott. But 107, 107 political parties uh, were represented and taking part in this election. 14,000 candidates, 107 political parties and 98 of those parties were from the opposition. It's a very interesting uh, set of facts when you consider that the framework of the U.S. government, not just Trump, but the Democrats in Congress is that. Venezuela is a, is a system of tyranny and dictatorship. Uh, anyway, I want to play a short audio clip. This is uh, Jimmy Carter speaking. Uh, he was a part of an election observer team in Ven earlier Venezuelan elections that the U.S. also didn't like because, uh, because the Chavistas, 
the supporters of Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution were winning those elections. That was before the economic sanctions on Venezuela took such a heavy, heavy toll on the living standards of Venezuelans, which as a consequence has diminished some of the support that existed uh, for this left-wing process. But listen to how Jimmy Carter actually uh, described the Venezuelan voting system. Let's listen. They have a very wonderful voting system where you go in and you touch the screen and vote the way you want to. And instantly that touch screen result is, is uh, recorded and can be transmitted electronically into the central counting headquarters, but it also prints out a paper ballot. And when you get through voting, you can not only have voted electronically, but you can look at the paper ballot and make sure that's the way that you wanted to vote. Then you put the paper ballot in a box and you can go back and check the results later on if there's any doubt about it. As a matter of fact, of the 92 elections that we've monitored, I would say that the election process in Venezuela is the best in the world. Amazing. That's former U.S. President Jimmy Carter saying that the election process, the election system in Venezuela, based on an evaluation of 92 different election systems, is, in his words, the best in the world. Let's turn to uh, another story that's in the news. Lloyd Austin uh, Esther is going to be, apparently, uh, Joe Biden's pick for Secretary of Defense. it's General Lloyd Austin, General Lloyd Austin. When, when Trump picked General James Mad Dog Mattis to be the Secretary of Defense, there was a hue and cry from some section of the Democratic Party that uh, Trump was you know, sort of sabotaging civilian rule over the military by picking a general who would be part of his cabinet to oversee the Pentagon. That's the, the function of the Secretary of Defense. But here's another general. Uh, again, the trend towards militarization is, you know, obvious. Uh, another general to be the civilian ch- in charge of the Pentagon, uh, Lloyd Austin, will have to get a waiver as General Mattis had to get. Uh, you have to be out of uniform for more than seven years. Uh, that's not the case with Austin. He was the general, a general in charge of the the Iraq War for part of that time, and. He left the military and retired in 2016, where he went to Raytheon, surprise, surprise, and other big corporations. But let's just talk about uh, Lloyd Austin's choice. A lot of liberals and progressive people were saying, don't pick Michelle Flournoy. She's too too much of a hawk. Well, Biden apparently is not picking her. He's picking another general. Well, it could be that Michelle Flournoy pose some special danger, but uh, this pick of Lloyd Austin could also be in reaction to Jim Clyburn, you know, starting to make these rumblings in November about his disappointment about how few black people were appointed to the cabinet. So at that time, only Linda Thompson Greenfield, a black diplomat who served in the Obama administration, was uh, picked to serve as ambassador to the United Nations. And there were a few other, you know, picks you know, of black people at that time. And you know that Clyburn helped implement the Obama strategy during the Democratic primary to turn the race to Biden's favor and by persuading his fellow black South Carolinians to throw their support to Biden in that pivotal time leading up to Super Tuesday. And so when I heard about this rumbling, I actually thought that Clyburn was really advocating for Susan Rice to fill one of these national security spots. And 
but you know, she would have been an even bigger lightning rod than Neera Tandon. Um, also last week, a coalition of civil rights organizations requested a meeting with Biden because of their concern over the lack of blacks being appointed to key positions. And really, uh, the all of these rumblings point to this larger political fissure in black politics, I think, you know, between those people who are still stressing this representation, which is really important. Representational politics is important. It's important, uh, especially coming after the, the Trump administration, which so demonized black and brown people. I can understand that impetus, right? Or that emphasis. But on the other side, there's the more people realizing that policy is what's important, especially in the post-Obama period where we had representation at the highest office, you know, actually in the highest office. And so many African-Americans were left, you know, in the worst financial position that they, they had lost. We lost more of our wealth under the Obama presidency that at any time before that in our history here in this country. So, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's pointing to this bigger fissure and this bigger debate about what is important, you know, as we see Biden not only make picks of, of any progressive people, but also not talk about policies that progressives wanted during the primaries. Let's turn to another story. Uh, U.S. troops, Nicole, are leaving Somalia. Uh, I have to say 99% of Americans probably didn't know that the U.S. was at war in Somalia. Somalia is an important country. It's in the Horn of Africa. It's a, a neighbor of Ethiopia and Kenya. Uh, yeah, U.S. troops are leaving Somalia, but they're not actually coming home. You hear U.S. troops are leaving place X and you think, oh, great, like we're bringing troops home. That's great. I think the majority of the country supports that. And actually, I know the majority of the country supports that. Um, but actually, yeah, these approximately 700 troops in Somalia um, will be leaving by January 15th to go to Kenya. Um, Kenya is where uh, many other military officials um, actually launch drone strikes on Somalia so essentially what's happening is the, the U.S. troops in Somalia um, that maybe some people in the U.S. are aware of are going to be going to Kenya where they'll be even more invisible, um, even though the U.S. is still going to be killing Somalians, but just from the sky. Um, and I, I think, Brian, there's really important um, history of the U.S. very, very much involved in the occupation of Somalia um, and uh, you know, the U.S. support has been really crucial for that occupation and actually was uh, one of the reasons why there was the initial destabilization that strengthened al-Shabaab, which is this group that um, the U.S. is targeting. Um, al-Shabaab became a major force after the U.S. encouraged uh, the Ethiopian occupation of Somalia in the mid-2000s. And al-Shabaab was essentially the main group that was opposing the Ethiopian occupation and fighting back. And that's how they became really strong. Yeah. Um, the, but the yeah, US, do you want to say a little? Yeah, the, the U.S. the U.S. intervened in, in, in Somalia, of course, in 1992 uh, under the pretext of trying to alleviate uh, a famine or the conditions of a famine, the hunger that came from a famine that was between the Bush administration's loss in the November election and Clinton, Bill Clinton taking office in January. So the Soviet Union had just fallen. The U.S. was the Pentagon was in search of new missions to justify looting the national treasury. So then that was when humanitarian interventionism became a thing. So yeah, the Marines landed 
on the beaches in order to alleviate a famine. I mean, incredible, right? Well, over the next year, uh, six to 10,000 Somalis who resisted the Americans taking over their country were killed. And of course, Americans learn about Somalia if they watch the movie Black Hawk Down about the, the deaths of a certain number of US military personnel during one of these battles. But that was small. Those were maybe 20, 25 US soldiers died. As many as 10,000 Somalis died, the government collapsed. There, is, there was no government. And here you have a vacuum. Al-Shabaab exists. It's like the U.S. invaded Iraq, and then there was ISIS. The U.S. invaded uh, or the U.S. supported the war in Afghanistan against the socialist government, and then there was the Taliban. Uh, you have these vacuums created by outside intervention. Anyway, we're going to come back and do a bigger story about Somalia later. Again, the war in Somalia is not over. It's just the U.S. policy now is going to make sure that all the bleeding is done by Somalis as the U.S. carries out drone strikes from nearby Kenya. Let's, uh, you know, we're out of time, almost out of time. But Esther, I, I don't think we should leave this show without recognizing a very important anniversary. On December 4th, 1969, Fred Hampton, 21 years old, the chairman of the Black Panther Party in Chicago, Illinois, shot dead by the Chicago cops working with the FBI and the COINTELPRO uh, program. He and Mark Clark shot dead while uh, in, he, in the case of Fred Hampton, while he was sleeping in a big police raid during the middle of the, the Chicago 7, or it could be called the Chicago 8 trial. Uh, Fred Hampton was there working with Bobby Seale, who was one of the defendants. Anyway, let's just remember Fred Hampton, an amazing leader and only 21 years old when he was killed by the U.S. state. And yes, Brian, and when you mentioned his age, it made me think about how much the story of Fred Hampton is important right now when we consider the uprising against racism this year filled with so many demonstrations, huge demonstrations filled with so many young black as well as white people, uh, brown people, people of all income levels, you know, led by uh, young black working class people. And it made me think about that because, you know, Fred Hampton, he was this charismatic young leader, as you mentioned, only 21, chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, who no doubt drew the attention because of his ability to bring together black people, white people, brown people, you know, Asian people uh, under this movement that was very class-based as opposed to just being race-based. I mean, in the 1960s, they, they were happy to try to target uh, the Black Panther Party as racist to say that they were they just hated Whitey and and they they weren't about that they hated the oppressor and that's what he said you know he said at once this is a quote of his we don't think we don't think you fight fire with fire best we think you fight fire with water best we're going to fight racism not with racism but we're going to fight with solidarity we say we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism but we're going to fight it with socialism we're going to fight with all of us people getting together and having an international proletarian revolution and that scared the bleep out of them <laughs> and so um, as you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, and, and the other thing is important to say about uh, 
Fred Hampton is that his his assassination was part of a, a, a larger COINTELPRO, an attack on the Black Panther Party to destroy it that year, four days after his assassination, and, and of also Mark Clark there. Uh, 350 Los Angeles police officers conducted another early morning raid of the Panther headquarters in in Los Angeles. And it had started that year with with other attacks uh, before Fred Hampton. So uh, I'm glad that we had this time to to remember Fred Hampton because his message is resonating for a newer generation of activists who are who are savvy and understand that the struggle here in this country is a class struggle and that we have to unite as working class people uh, and not be divided by issues of race like Trump tried to do and other the, the Republican Party has been trying to do and really understand that our struggle is is a class struggle together. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And 28 leaders of the Black Panther Party were murdered by the police as part of COINTELPRO. Many, many, many were jailed. Uh, every time the Panthers tried to set up uh, a headquarters, I lived in Rochester, New York. As soon as the Panthers set up a headquarters, I, I knew those folks. They were my age. They were 15, 16, 17-year-old teenagers. Uh, immediately, the, the office was riddled with gunfire. Uh, undoubtedly, that came from uh, the forces organized by the FBI's COINTELPRO program. It was a war against uh, the Black Panther Party. But as you said, Esther, it was a war against the vanguard of the working class movement in the United States because that was the role occupied at that time by the Black Panther Party. Anyway, we're completely out of time for this segment of In the News. We want to turn, though, to a very, very important, more in-depth interview with Leonardo Flores. He's the Latin American campaign coordinator for Code Pink. And he's an expert on Venezuela. We're going to talk about the historic elections that took place this past Sunday. Now we are joined by Leonardo Flores. Leonardo is Latin American campaign coordinator for Code Pink. He is an expert on Venezuela and on U.S.-Venezuelan relations. Uh, Leo, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on, Brian. Thank you. We we talked to you last week about the upcoming what was then the upcoming election in Venezuela it took place on Sunday. Uh, it's an important election, perhaps even a historic election. I want to talk to you about who won, why the winners won, about voter turnout, and how the international so-called community, I think it's a misnomer, how international political forces are receiving the news about the election. But let's get started First, who won, what happened, and who participated? Sure. So who won is the PSUV coalition. The, this is the coalition of political parties that backs President Maduro. It includes the PSUV and several other sm smaller parties. They took about 68% of the vote. Uh, they're expected to win about 190 or so seats of the 277 seats in the National Assembly. The final count isn't out yet. Uh, but it's a, you know, in that regard, it's a huge victory for the PSUV. They've managed to retake the National Assembly, which they had previously lost in 2015 and, and legislative elections in that year. Uh, and really, in, in other ways, I think the Venezuelan people won because these elections were held in peace, right? And we've had four years of the Trump administration 
actively trying to spark a civil war or a coup or even in a possible invasion of Venezuela. And the fact that these elections were held in a context of complete you know, tranquility is a big victory for the Venezuelan people, I think. It's really something when you think back to the last almost two years. On January 23rd, 2019, uh, Juan Guaido, who very few Venezuelans even knew of, didn't know his name, announced on a stage, on a stage of an opposition rally, that he was indeed the president of uh, Venezuela. He was immediately recognized by the Trump administration. Then Trump, uh, the Trump team twisted the arm of other governments in about 50 countries, uh, then recognized Juan Guaido, not Nicolas Maduro, as who was the elected leader of Venezuela, to be the new president. Then there was an attempted coup uh, during the next month at the at the Colombia-Venezuelan border. Then there was the armed uprising called for by Juan Guaido on April 30th, 2019. That fizzled out. Uh, then more and more and more economic sanctions against Venezuela. Uh, in Washington, the embassy in Georgetown was seized in an act of international lawlessness, a violation of the Vienna Convention an act of piracy by the Trump administration. Uh, when you think back to what it looked like in January, February, March, April, May 2019, it would have been hard to predict that the Maduro government would have survived all of that and, it, and been able to actually organize again national elections with, if not all of the opposition, certainly very substantial number of opposition candidates participating uh, it's really a, been a remarkable two years. It has been. And really, you know, I think we have to go be, before that, too, because in 2017, that was when the Trump administration first started applying sanctions, crippling Venezuela's oil industry. And then you had all these kind of paramilitary attempts against Venezuela coming from Colombia, backed by the United States, like, for example, the 2018 assassination by drone attempt on President Maduro. Uh, so, so yeah, it's really kind of incredible that the that the Maduro government has been able to hold on, uh, and it's really a testament to the popular support that it has, right? And so we're talking about a government that has has just built it 3.3 million homes over the past, uh, I believe, nine years for poor and low income people. Uh, so you in a population of about 30 million people. So you have 10 percent of the population roughly has the now has dignified housing right if only we could have that here in the united states in addition throughout this whole context of sanctions and attempted coups and military threats uh the venezuelan people you know there's this program called the clap which is a local committees for supply and production which gives basically food to seven million families a month and that has really prevented a, a humanitarian disaster in venezuela and so, you know, the Maduro government has been able to do all of this in the context of what the Trump administration calls a maximum pressure strategy. So it's not just that the government has been able to hold on. They've also been able to protect the people from the worst of these attacks to certain extents. And so in, in that regard, uh, it's not at all. It's not that surprising that Maduro is, 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 you know, that the PSUV won the elections and that Maduro is still in power because they've been the one, the only ones really looking out for the interests of the poor and working class in Venezuela. Whereas on the other side of the political spectrum, we have an extremist opposition that has called for sanctions repeatedly, that has called for U.S. invasion, and that has tried to bring the country into civil war. As you mentioned, there is a moderate opposition that kind of sprang up. Uh, in response to the extremism of, of, of Juan Guaido and his factions. 
And this moderate op op opposition has been engaging in dialogue with the Maduro government. And really, the elections that were held on Sunday are a result of that dialogue. Because, for example, because of uh, when Juan Guaido had control of the National Assembly, they were in contempt of court. There was a huge institutional crisis in the country. The CNE, which is the National Electoral Authority in Venezuela, had five leaders that were supposed to be replaced, and they couldn't be replaced because, because of this institutional paralysis. But then they were replaced as a result of the dialogue between the moderate opposition and the Venezuelan, you know, the, the Maduro administration. And so what we, Sunday was the fruits of, those, of that dialogue. Leonardo, I read somewhere that there were 14,000 candidates from 107 political parties taking part in the election on Sunday, and 98 of, the, of these parties are from the opposition. One, is that accurate, more or less? And, and two, I mean, the, the whole image that's being presented in the American media and by the American government, and by both of the, the ruling class parties here, the Democrats and the Republicans, is that Venezuela is a dictatorship, it's a tyranny, 14,000 candidates from 107 political parties just doesn't sound like the model for most dictatorships. Yeah, so that is a, a fairly accurate number. I would say it's maybe 97 political parties that are in opposition. Uh, so a huge number of candidates, huge number of political parties, and wide diversity, uh, ideological diversity within those parties, right? And, and the, to call Venezuela a dictatorship is to really ignore uh, this process, you know, the Bolivarian Revolution, what it's been doing for the past 20 years. It has widely expanded voting rights and voting access. Uh, it is one of the most has one of the most secure voting systems in the world. And right now, you know, the new National Assembly expanded from uh, 165 representatives to 277. So now Venezuelan people are even more represented by their legislature. And just to give you a quick comparison. In Venezuela, there's about 115,000 people per representative in the legislature. In the United States, it's 780,000 people per representative and about 3.3 million people per senator. So, you know, it, 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 to, call Venezuela, to call Venezuela a dictatorship is, is absolutely ridiculous. It ignores the facts on the ground. And it's really part of this plan, not just by the Trump administration, but really by U.S. empire to delegitimize Venezuela's institutions. It's a plan that's been taking place for the past 22 years. And the idea is that if they are able to delegitimize Venezuela's institutions, if they're able to call it a dictatorship and not get called out on it, then they're able to push through with their attempts at regime change. And that's exactly what we've seen happen over the past 20 years. You have a complacent corporate media in the United States that doesn't question uh, whether these wild claims by the, by the successive administrations and state departments about Venezuela's democracy. And in not questioning it, you're setting kind of the stage for Venezuela to be un under constant attack. And somehow it's okay because it's not a real democracy, supposedly. But of course, the facts are totally the opposite. Venezuela has a vibrant democracy. It's been under attack, as I've been mentioning. But I have to note that like, one of the ways that the Trump administration subverted the democracy in Venezuela is that they were very uh, you know, strategic in sabotaging dialogue between the government and opposition, dialogue that has taken place at several points since 2017, 2018. The latest strategy in this whole kind of attempting, attempted sabotage was to 
characterize the moderate opposition, the moderate opposition being those pol politicians from the right who decided to participate in the elections, they characterize them as puppets of the Maduro administration, despite the fact that we're talking about people who are neoliberals, neocons that are anti-socialist to the core. But they do realize that the only way forward for Venezuela is for, through dialogue and democracy and not through sanctions. Because they've taken this step, the, the U, U.S. government demonizes them and the corporate media follows suit, saying also that they're puppets. But really, the actual puppet is, of course, Juan Guaido. He's someone who gets paid directly or used to get paid before uh, the United States gave Citgo to, to Juan Guaido's faction. He used to get paid directly from USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Develop. So really, uh, you know, the puppets are the ones that are pushing for, for sanctions and coups and wars in Venezuela. Leonardo. Uh, earlier in our show, we play. We had a, a in our in the news segment. We had a brief uh, discussion about Venezuela, and we played a, an audio clip from Jimmy Carter. Carter was and his team were, you know, they're they're part of an international sort of institution that monitors elections, and it was very noteworthy what what Carter said about the Venezuelan election process, the system itself. I want to play the audio clip once again. Uh, it's only about a minute long, but then I want to get you uh, to comment about it because I'm. What I want to ask you is, is the is the system he's talking about? Is it the same system? Let's listen to Jimmy Carter. They have a very wonderful voting system where you go in and you touch the screen and vote the way you want to, and instantly that touch screen result is is uh, recorded and can be transmitted electronically into the central counting headquarters, but it also prints out a paper ballot. And, and when you get through voting, you can not only have voted electronically, but you can look at the paper ballot and make sure that's the way that you wanted to vote. Then you put the paper ballot in a box and you can go back and check the results later on if there's any doubt about it. As a matter of fact, of the 92 elections that we've monitored, I would say that the election process in Venezuela is the best in the world. Leonardo, Jimmy Carter said Venezuela's election system is the best in the world. Has it changed? It hasn't changed, but it's actually a little bit more robust than Jimmy Carter explained. So to, to unlock, so when as a voter, you go into the voting station, right? And the first thing you do is you place your fingerprint on the little machine that it once your identity is verified, it unlocks the voting machine. So, so there's a prior step to what, what Jimmy Carter is talking about that makes sure, and, then, and that way you can make sure that people don't vote more than once. But yeah, the, the basic idea is that you're voting electronically by getting a paper receipt. At the end of the, the voting day, the electronic count is immediately tallied. And then there's an audit of the system in which at least 54% of the machines, the, the individual machines, their vote counts are compared to the ballot boxes where the paper receipts were placed. That way you can compare to see if the digital vote count is actually the same as the paper receipts. It's almost always the same, right? And so that's, you know, this, it assuages the fears of people who think, well, elections that are electronic can be hacked. These elections can't really be hacked because even if you were to go uh, and attack the electronic machines, you still have this paper receipt to back it all up. In addition to this, you have a, uh, audits throughout the, uh, the electoral process before, during, and after the elections. For these this year's elections, there were 16 audits. In these audits, people are, you know, these are free to, uh, people are free to participate in them. I mean, every, every average everyday citizens are free to come in and witness. In addition to that, you have representatives from all the political parties that are taking place. So it's a system that's verified and scrutinized at every single step 
And it's something that should really build confidence in Venezuelan voters. But unfortunately, because of the attacks that we've seen from the international press, from the United States, from the Lima Group and NATO countries, it's been kind of delegitimized to a certain extent in what we what they like to call the international community. Leonardo, I, I want to ask you about the so-called international community. The European Union has attempted to impose conditions on Venezuela. It insisted that Venezuela move its elections. Uh, I don't think the European Union sent election observers. The Organization of American States also refused to send uh, a delegation for uh, election monitoring. There were thousands of people, as I understand it, who did come as election monitors. But why is the European Union uh, taking the same position as the Trump administration and the same with the OAS? Well, I'll start with the OAS. The OAS is basically a tool of U.S. imperialism. So it's not at all surprising that they're taking the same position as the Trump administration. And at the OAS, it you know, has different functions at different times, depending who the secretary general is. The previous secretary general used to push back a little bit against U.S. interference in Latin America. The current secretary general, Luis Almagro, is very much in line with the Trump administration's vision for a, you know, a right-wing neoliberal quasi-fascist throughout the region. And so Almagro, I, I should, I really have to note briefly that he was behind the coup in Bolivia in 2019. The OES played a fundamental ro- the role there in overturning the electoral results in 2019, leading to this coup and the coup regime that committed horrible crimes. So they weren't actually invited this time around to Venezuela because Venezuela withdrew from the OES in 2017. It became official in 2019. And so Venezuela doesn't really have any ties to the OES at this moment. So they weren't invited. The EU was invited. The EU refused to come. And not only were they invited by the government of of Nicolás Maduro, but they were also invited by an opposition leader named Enrique Capriles. Capriles was a a presidential candidate, two-time loser, 2012-2013, a previous kind of darling of the U.S. political establishment who's lost a bit of luster as other figures such as Juan Guaido came into the spotlight a bit more. But his gambit was to try to convince the European Union to come. And if they had come, then then Capriles' faction would have participated on in Sunday's elections. They didn't come, despite the fact they were, asked, they were asked to come in September. They said there wasn't enough time. I don't understand how three months is not enough time to form a, an electoral observation mission. And then the day, the night of the election, you know, you have the top diplomat of the US, EU, Joseph Burrell, said that the Venezuelans that the Venezuelan government failed to mobilize the Venezuelan people to participate. I mean, that, that, that's, that statement is absolutely hypocritical because the, Venez- the Venezuelan government and the moderate opposition did everything they could to mobilize the turnout, but it was you know, stifled by an extremist faction that, that uh, boycotted the elections and by the refusal of the, of the EU to actually monitor, despite being invited by many actors. Final question, Leonardo. Uh, Biden is taking the White House January 20th, 2021. Uh, You talked about Trump's the last four years of the the war waged by the Trump administration against Venezuela and and Venezuelan sovereignty. What do you expect? Well, I don't expect much to change. I think what we've seen or the comments we've seen from, say, Secretary, the nominee for Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he said something about you know, troops being U.S. troops near Syrian oil fields. He said he was against it, but that he would use it as leverage, right? So the fact that 
that to me means that everything that the Trump administration has done in Venezuela is going to be used as leverage against the Maduro administration, including the illegal sanctions, some of which really have the potential to cause a huge humanitarian disaster, such as the, you know, the recent sanctions on diesel fuel and on gasoline. Uh, I don't think the, I think the one positive of the Biden administration might be that it might be less likely to engage in overt military threats. And it might also be less likely to permit Colombia to send, you know, to serve as a, a landing base or a launch pad for the paramilitary attacks we've seen in Venezuela. That's yet to be determined, though. I, it's not, I'm not particularly hopeful that there's going to be any sort of rapprochement before, between uh, the Maduro government and the Biden government. Uh, I think we're going to see more of the same. But, you know, I, and it, to me, it, the fact that turnout was relatively low on Sunday is really disappointing because had it been a little higher, then this moderate opposition would have had more legitimacy to come to Washington and say, hey, look, we have millions of people behind us. You guys are backing the wrong folks in, these, in Juan Guaido in his faction. You have to let, you know, democracy and dialogue take root in Venezuela. I don't see the, the Biden administration having much interest in letting that happen now, unfortunately. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.